Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, today is the final week of our teaching series about power, and some of you are like, oh, good, finally. Um, We've been reflecting on some of the emerging cultural beliefs about power, uh, and then we've also been diving into and and exploring what the Bible teaches us about power. So if you've got a Bible handy this morning, uh, I'm going to get you to turn to Micah chapter 6. Uh, If you don't know where that is, you're going to find it in the Old Testament. It's in the Minor Prophets, which is near the end of the Old Testament. And if that doesn't help you, turn to your table of contents in your Bible, and it should be able to direct you where you need to go. But we're going to go to Micah chapter 6. You can look at it paper or digitally. Uh, Also, you would have received sermon notes if you came in this morning, and I hope that's helpful for you in in following along. Those of you who are online, the crosspointchurch.ca slash notes will get you there. um, So you can track with us as we go through uh, today's message. I want to start with a provocative question this morning. Why should we care about the powerless? Why should we care about the powerless? Somewhere in Thailand, there's a 14-year-old girl. And right now, it's just past midnight in the red light district brothel that she's in. She has just served herself to 10 different partners... She came to the city, sold by her poor rural parents, and every week she sends them money for her efforts. But why should we care? Somewhere in Afghanistan, a child is suffering from malnutrition. His father is going to have to abandon his farm that he's had for generations. The economy has collapsed. Drought has encroached and destroyed last year's crops. They have no seed to plant food now. They got no food to eat. So soon this multi-generation family is going to be uprooted and go somewhere in order to survive. But why should we care? Somewhere in Edmonton, a homeless person is waking up from a very cold night. Somewhere in Edmonton, a single mother is about to be evicted. Somewhere in Edmonton, a refugee can't find a job to make ends meet. But why should we care? This morning, I want to have a rather awkward and uncomfortable conversation about resisting powers in order to help the powerless. Why should we, the people of God, care about the powerless? So let's turn to Micah chapter 6. And we're going to start, I'm going to read from verses 6 to 8, and I encourage you to follow along. This is the word of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come with him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we this morning are so grateful for your mercy and kindness towards us. 
And as we go into your word this morning, we thank you that for the gift that it is. And we pray that you would use it to make us more like you and transform us. Lord, that we might be your hands and your feet and voice in the world today. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone together said, Amen. So let me give you a backstory about what's happening here in the book of Micah. Um, as you would know, the words of the, this is these are the words of Micah the prophet. Uh, he lived in Judah during the time of what was called the divided kingdom. Uh, you might remember that the divided kingdom took place after King Solomon's reign. The, the nation got divided into two, Judah to the south, Israel to the north. And during this time of the divided kingdom, God's people essentially, for the most part, turned their backs on him under the leadership of a number of corrupt kings. But Micah was writing during the time of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, as it turns out, was one of the good guys. He changed the religious landscape of Judah by instituting a whole number of reforms. So he's writing during a time of national revival. The temple had been cleansed. The priesthood had been made holy again. Idols were removed. Uh, altars to foreign gods were torn down. Worship was reinstituted. reinstituted. The law was being uh, reinforced across the land. So everything about Judah's faith just seemed to be going in the right direction. At least on the surface. See, the problem was, is when you actually peeled back the thin veneer of their religion, you discovered a great big steaming pile of social sins that were running rampant throughout the nation. So there was, there was corruption, there was oppression. I mean, you pick this up as you read Micah's prophecy in total. Judges were taking bribes. Widows were being kicked to the curb. Greedy nobles were extorting the poor and, and taking their land. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer. So in this chapter of Micah, the Lord confronts and challenges Judah. And he invites Judah to consider one question. What is it that pleases the Lord? Is it your religious rituals? Your burnt offerings. A thousand rams and ten thousand rivers of oil. Is it enough just to kind of go through the religious motions? Or, or is there something more? And then when we get to verse 8, Micah kind of gives us the answer. See, what God actually requires of us is, is a changed heart. A heart that's, that's, that's actually full of genuine love and devotion to the Lord. And what does that ultimate, the heart ultimately look like? It's a heart that is broken for the powerless and the vulnerable. See, the thing about God is that God's actually on the side of the poor, the broken, and the marginalized. And you cannot worship God with one breath and yet in, in the next breath despise the powerless. Because to love God means to love what God loves. Let me just read verse 8 for you one more time. He has told you, O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, I just want to take a bit of time and, and, and look closely at two words that are being used here. The words are kindness and justice. I think they're, they're, they need some explanation, some bearing out. And so I'm going to be drawing on this time uh, from Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice. I really appreciate how he's unpacked these terms. But let's talk first of all about kindness. The, the Hebrew word here is kesed. It's a heart word. It's a word that, that talks about this inner grace and compassion. So it refers to your attitude towards the powerless. Now some of your translations might use the word mercy. And, and the word mercy actually kind of carries the same idea. 
What is it that pleases God? It's when we love kindness. We value it. We embrace it. We live in it. But then let's look at justice. The Hebrew word that's used for justice is mishpat. Mishpat is more about your actions than about your attitude. You see, you, you love mercy, but you do justice. So justice is essentially the external action that's connected to your internal attitude. And as it turns out, justice and compassion, or justice and, and kindness, sorry, go hand in hand. So what is it that pleases the Lord? The answer to the question is simple. Do justice, love mercy. And, you know, when I think about us, you know, Christians in the 21st century, if we were to ask the question, what pleases the Lord? Well, it'd be pretty much the same thing. You can have the right doctrine. I mean, you can, you can fully engage in our worship gatherings on a Sunday morning. You can raise your hands, dance in the aisles. You, you can attend your home group study faithfully. You can recite John 3.16 in 17 different languages backwards, okay? But if you cannot do justice, and if you cannot love mercy, then there's a problem. So what is justice? You know, I, I think that's a really important question, particularly in our day. There is a lot of conversation about justice in our current cultural conversations. We've already talked about this, in, especially in the first two weeks of this series. We talked about the social justice movement. When the Bible speaks of doing justice, to be clear, it is not specifically using the same framework as the social justice movement. Now, on the surface, there are similarities, but there are also significant differences. And listen, I'd love to talk about that this morning. We don't have time. I encourage you to go back, listen to the first couple of weeks. It'll become very clear what the differences are. The differences essentially are in why we do justice and how we do justice. So what is biblical justice? Well, the word mishpat, at its most fundamental level, its most basic level, means simply this. Treat all people fairly and equitably, regardless of their race, regardless of their gender, regardless of their age or their social status. Treat everybody fairly. And in the, in the Bible, as you read through it, you understand that this, this justice, this mishpat, is implied in two very distinct ways. The first is with legal procedure. So it's with mishpat, people should be given a fair trial and fair sentencing. So there should be no favoritism based on any of these factors. Uh, for example, the law stated in Levit Leviticus 24-22 that the foreigner and the Israelite both should have the same mishpat. They should have the same justice. So there should be no favoritism, no different levels of sentencing, no bribes, nada, none of that. But Mishpat also extended beyond the legal system. It also included that all people should be treated fairly and equitably in society. So justice also meant providing protection and care for the vulnerable. Let me give you an example from Proverbs chapter 31 verse 9. Here's what it says. Open your mouth, judge righteously, Mishpat. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. So justice means giving a voice to the vulnerable or powerless. Making sure they are protected and providing, provided for. So what I'd like to do in our remaining time together is I just want to look closer at what it means for us to do justice. And to do that, I want to answer three questions. Question number one is, where do we do justice? Question two is, how can we do justice? And question three is, why should we do 
justice. Here's the first question. Where do we do justice? Well, justice begins with the most vulnerable, with the powerless. The question is, who are these vulnerable people? So in in the Old Testament, there were actually four groups of people that God was deeply concerned about. These were widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. And as you read through the Old Testament, you find this refrain repeated again and again. Immigrants, orphans, widows, and the poor. And these, these groups are actually especially vulnerable in biblical times. I mean, you've got to think about it. I mean, this is thousands of years ago in an agrarian society. Um, there was no social safety net. There's no government assistance. There was no bank savings. There's no insurance. There were no relief organizations per se. These groups of people essentially lived hand-to-mouth every single day. And so if there was ever a, a natural disaster or a war or a famine, they were the first people to suffer and likely to die. So they were also particularly susceptible to exploitation by those who were more powerful than them. And, and what you discover as you read through the Old Testament is that God is particularly concerned about the powerless. And he wants to ensure that they have justice, that they are provided for and cared for. Now, most often the issue of justice is related to the issue of poverty. And and there's a lot of debates these days over what is the root cause of poverty. If you're paying attention online uh, to the news or to social media, you you might hear in our current cultural conversations two common views. And both of these views are actually a little bit overly simplistic. Um, On the far progressive left, you will hear people say that poverty is the result of social forces that are beyond their control. So poverty is the result of oppressive systems and structures. And all we have to do is simply remove or reform these systems and people will be able to respond and simply rise from poverty. But in response to that, there are those who are on the far right, and sometimes fundamentalist Christians join in this refrain, but those on the far right who will say that it's not about systems and structures, it's about individual responsibility. If people just worked harder, they could work their way out of poverty. What they actually need is more self-discipline, better habits, and better families. So who's right? Who's right? Is poverty structural or is poverty, poverty individual? And I think most of us will agree that the answer is actually not quite as simple as people make it out to be. That it's actually more nuanced. It's more complex than either of these answers. But sadly, because our culture is becoming increasingly polarized and partisan, it often forces us to take a side. So what does the Bible say? about what are the root causes of poverty. Now, before I talk about this, I think it's important that you understand this morning that I'm not approaching this topic simply clinically or academically. If you know my story, um, you will know that I grew up in a family of poverty. I, I know very well what it's like living below the poverty line needing the food bank, subsisting on social assistance, living on hand-me-downs, dodging the creditors, not being able to pay bills. You know that's part of my story. And not only was I poor, but my family was poor, but my family was also very broken. So there was abuse and addiction, neglect. There was a lot of yelling and crying and hiding that went on in my family. And then to add even more complexity to this, 
My family was also mixed ethnicity. My father's First Nations, my mother is Anglo-European. And of course, this added more layers to the nature of the problems that we were facing as a family. So if you were to ask me the question, Rob, why was your family in poverty? I think I'd have to give you a very complex answer. I mean, were we products of a system that was set, and set my family up for failure generations before? Were we in poverty because of my father's broken individual decisions? At the end of the day, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. It's complicated. But what I do know is that I did start the race of life 20 paces behind all of my peers. And I had to work very, very, very hard to try and catch up. And that by God's grace, I am who I am today. And I'm very thankful for that. And that God allowed people to intrude in my life to help me along the way. The causes of poverty in the Bible, as you read it, are both balanced and nuanced. In fact, the Bible actually gives a whole number of reasons why uh, there is poverty. A number of different causes. One of the causes is simply natural disasters. Uh, so this could include injury, flood, fires, pestilence. Famine was one of the biggest contributors. So in biblical times, like I said, there's no safety net, no food trucks, no Walmarts. And famines, if there was a famine in the land, this often uprooted whole families, whole nations of families. They had to move to another region of the world where there was actually food in order to be able to survive. We saw a micro version of this reality just recently. If you've been watching the news, I don't know if you heard, it's been raining in British Columbia. <laughs> Quite a bit, right? Um, the flooding, though, has caused problems in production and distribution. So, so farms are underwater, cattle are dying, and so this is creating shortages in the market. But on top of that, there's panic buying and there's hoarding, leaving empty grocery stores. I mean, you can watch the pictures in the news. You can see just shelves completely empty in, in this region. Which people are less able to hoard and to panic buy? The vulnerable, the poor. So natural disasters can be a contribution to, um, to poverty. But another cause of poverty was personal moral failure. I mean, the Bible is really clear that there is a reward for hard work and there is a cost for laziness. We read this in Proverbs chapter 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. I think we can learn a lot from an ant, right? Ants aren't forced to work. They just work because they know they have to hustle to get ahead. So they are productive and they reap the result of their productivity. The sluggard should look at the ant and should learn something. If you're going to lie around all day, binging on Netflix and eating nachos... Don't be surprised if poverty sneaks up on you. The infinite scroll and the limitless stream don't pay the bills. They will rob you of your future. Go to the ant, you're sluggard. Learn something. There is a reward for hard work. And of course, there are, there are countless other scriptures that we could look to that, that, that kind of say the same thing. That, that laziness is bad and hard work is a good thing. But hard work will not always guarantee that you can rise above poverty. And this is what you often hear is that if people just worked harder, if they just did more, suddenly they could rise. L listen, scripture is very clear about this. Sometimes no matter how hard you work, 
you cannot get ahead. Proverbs 13.23 makes this abundantly clear. Here's what it says. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. Listen, there are, there are people all across the world who work long hours, countless hours, hard work. They work harder than me. They work harder than most Canadians. But no matter how hard they work, they keep getting punched down into poverty. This brings us to the third cause of poverty that Scripture is very clear about, and that's oppression. The oppression is, is when unjust individuals or systems take advantage of the vulnerable, and they prevent them from being treated fairly or equitably. And, and in Scripture, you find this, this injustice actually takes on a number of forms. Let me just track some of them here. I've written them down. Uh, it might look like a broken justice system where there's favoritism. Uh, loans with excessive interest. Uh, unfair wages. Excessive taxes. Or, or a system of bribery that's in place that disadvantages the poor and advantages the rich. So what causes poverty? What does the Bible say? Well, the biblical response to poverty is actually nuanced. There are multiple factors, and it's also balanced. And as it turns out, it doesn't take sides in our present-day partisan politics. There are multiple causes of poverty, which actually requires a very nuanced approach to doing justice in our day. So here's the second question. How can we do justice? I'll be really quick here in explaining this, but let me, let me just touch on three different levels of doing justice that I think it's important for us to understand. Uh, relief, development, and social reform. Relief, development, and social reform. And these, are, these are categories that are broadly used, but uh, interestingly, we don't always think about doing justice in these terms. What is relief? Well, relief is when you, you direct aid to meet a person's needs, whether it's physical, material, or economic. So if someone needs food, or they need shelter, or they need clothing, or money, you provide it for them to keep them going. Relief is a temporary form of justice. But then beyond relief, you have development. And development is when you provide individuals or groups with what they need to move beyond dependency on relief. So you are helping them to become self-sustaining. So relief might be a handout, but development is a hand up. And then beyond that, we have social reform. And social reform moves even beyond these two factors. Social reform moves beyond relief and development to change the conditions and social structures that actually cause the problem, that cause the dependency that people have. Because it's not just enough just to create opportunity. Sometimes you have to eliminate some of the problems that are causing the, the situation in the first place. So let's consider the story of the Good Samaritan. Do we know the story of the Good Samaritan? Uh, Luke chapter 10. Jewish man went down from Jericho, attacked by robbers. He was penniless, left for dead. The religious establishment kind of walked on by and ignored him. But it was his enemy, a Samaritan, who rescued him. Bound his wounds with oil and wine. Took him to an inn and paid for his stay until he got better. How did the Samaritan do justice? The Samaritan offered relief. He gave direct help to someone in need, and when there was, that person was well again, they moved on. Now, let's suppose after that, the time at the inn is over, and the Samaritan, uh, the, the, the Jewish man, has to kind of get on with his life, but he can't. He has no family, he has no job, he's, he's kind of stuck there. Well, so what if the Samaritan helped him find a job and a new place to live? What would that be? That would be development. So complete, uh, what would social reform look like? The last question. 
Well, the Samaritan would get a bunch of people together and they'd gather around and they'd say, we've got to answer this question. How do we stop the violence on the road to Jericho? Relief, development, social reform. And doing justice actually involves all of these different factors. Uh, you know, if, if, you, if you're paying attention um, to the cultural conversation, uh, sometimes Christians react against this idea of, of social reform or, or sh dealing with structures and, and systems of power. But what we fail to forget is, is that, that the Bible actually gives examples of where this takes place. For example, Jesus himself went after a broken system. You might remember the story of Jesus going into the temple courts, pulling out a whip, overturning the, the tables for the money changers. Why, why did he do that? Well the, well, the money changers at that time were taking advantage of the poor. You see, God had established in the law um, a sacrificial system. And because there were people who, in the sacrificial system, could never afford a lamb or an ox or, or what was required for the sacrificial system, God made a provision for them so they could purchase something at a lesser cost. Birds, for example. They could sacrifice birds in order to be, uh, take part in the sacrificial system. But you've got to imagine somebody's journeying dozens of miles from their homeland to get to Jerusalem to take part in temple worship, and they're going to have to buy a bird when they get there. And they can't buy a bird at home. They've got to buy it when they get there. They get into the temple courts, and there are these money changers and lenders and people selling their product, but what they're doing is they're jacking up the price because they know the poor have no other alternative. This was an injustice. So why did Jesus go in and say, you know, you've made this into a den of robbers? Why did he pull out a whip? Why did he create this social reform, attack the system? It was because it was an injustice. And there's another example in Acts chapter 6, of course. You, if you read the story, uh, there, the, there's a problem in the city of Jerusalem. All these people had flooded to Jerusalem because of the revival, because of the Holy Spirit coming. And, and as a result, the number of people who had come were, were, were poor people, were widows, were orphans. And what it turned out was in the, 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 the church had taken up this system of food distribution, right? Because there are people there. They can't find food. There's no Walmart. There's no McDonald's, right? How do people eat? So the, foods, the, the church started doing it. But what they discovered is the Jewish people were being favored, but those who were non-Jewish were being overlooked. And so there was, this, there was a problem, and it was a systemic problem. What was their solution? Their solution was, well, to institute a system that's going to help provide food not only for the Jews, but also for, for the Greeks. So the idea of, of working in systems and structures is also very, very biblical. Um, I'm not saying it's the only solution, but I, I just want to make that clear this morning. Final question. Why should we do justice? As followers of Jesus, our reason for doing justice flows from two fundamental beliefs. The first of these beliefs is the belief in what's called the Imago Dei. It's the belief that every person, every human being, is created in the image of God. This is the reason why we do justice for every person. Every person has value, has worth, and has dignity by design. Did you know that, like, apart from this belief, there's actually no good reason for treating human beings with dignity. If you trace back to all of it, that's simply an assumption that we should all treat people kindly and treat them well. For example, you cannot go from materialism or atheism and make a direct line to justice. If we're just the result of random molecules kind of coming together over billions of years of trial and error, it does not necessarily follow that human beings are unique or special, 
or that we should treat anybody kind. There's no, there's no logical reason why we should do that. As a matter of fact, what's more logical is survival of the fit, fittest. New atheist, Richard Dawkins, he actually wrote about this in his book, uh, the River Out of Edom. I, I appreciate his honesty. I love what he says. He says this in his, in his very smug, um, colorful language. He says, you know, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. What I do appreciate about Dawkins, and I have read this book, is his consistency in applying his atheist position. He knows he cannot escape his own rigorous logic. He says that we can't get to human meaning or purpose through atheism. Plenty of atheists have tried, and they've failed. But it's a huge logical leap to say that people deserve justice if you don't believe that humans are created in the image of God. How valuable are human beings? James 3.9 uh, says that we should actually be careful about how we use our tongues. Because here's what it says. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. This verse actually shows us just how valuable people are. Look to the person to your left. Look to the person to your right. That person is valuable, is created in the image of God, has inerrant worth and dignity because of this. This, it, this dignity comes from who they reflect. And so how you treat that person reflects on the one who created them. So much that even your very words matter. And friends, this is why, as believers in Christ, we seek justice for all people. And i got to say this, is that when this belief is, is actually embraced, and when it's applied, it can become revolutionary. It was revolutionary in the first century, when it was, when it, when it was purported by Christians and, and brought through the empire. And it's revolutionary even today. Did you know that this, this belief, this understanding, was actually at the heart of the civil rights movement? You won't hear about this in the news or in the popular media, but just read Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermons, and you will see it everywhere. It is undeniable. The Imago Dei is the driving force for justice in a world of injustice. So this is one of the reasons why we do justice. But here's the second reason. The second reason why we do justice is because our belief in the grace of God. The grace of God is the belief that everything we have is ultimately a gift from God. Our resources, our opportunities, our relationships, and yes, our own salvation. Everything we have is by God's grace. So you cannot beg for it. You cannot buy it. You cannot barter for it. You don't deserve it. But you can receive it gladly as a gift. And in Micah's day, the people of God had missed the grace of God. 
They had forgotten that they were actually recipients of God's grace. That the nation of Israel's very existence was born out of God's grace. I mean, we read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16 to 19. Moses is talking to Israel, okay? And, and he's reminding them why they should care about the powerless. Here's what he says. He says, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Awkward. Okay. Um, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for who? For the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. What's he saying here? He's saying, you were once poor, Israel. I mean, you were wanderers. You were outsiders. But God, by God's grace, you were chosen as God's people. And not only that, you were redeemed from slavery in Egypt. So why should you care about orphans and widows and foreigners? Here's the answer. For you were once sojourners in the land of Egypt. It's because of God's grace towards you. So Israel, change your hearts. Love mercy. Do justice. And this was what the Micah the prophet was trying to address. The people of God had forgotten that they were once sojourners. They lost sight of God's grace. They no longer loved mercy. Friends, we also have been chosen by God. We also have been redeemed from our slavery to sin. We have been welcomed into God's family. And all of this is because of God's grace. So do justice. Love mercy. We will only do justice to the degree that we understand the height, the width, and the breadth of God's love for us. So to get back to the question, why should we care about the powerless? Romans 5, 6 tells us that we were, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Justice flows when we fully grasp God's grace for us. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who does the kingdom of heaven belong to? It belongs to those of us who understand our moral bankruptcy. Our spiritual bankruptcy. For those of us who fully understand that there, there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can add to God's saving grace in Christ Jesus. And if you think you've got something to add, then you're not poor in spirit. You're perhaps middle class in spirit. And if you are middle class in spirit, the likelihood of you loving mercy and doing justice is very slim. But we are a people of grace. Bought by God's grace. Compelled by God's grace. And so Crosspoint, I want to end today with just an invitation. It's an invitation for you to love mercy and to do justice. And my prayer and my heart's cry for this community, as it has been from the day we first planted it, is that we will be a place where justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In the next month, we are going to be inviting you to join with us as we seek to do justice here in Edmonton 
and to the ends of the earth. I'm not going to tell you how we're going to invite you. Today, I'm just plowing the soil. In the weeks ahead, we're going to be sowing the seeds. But we are going to be inviting you into our mission. And I want to say to you, forget COVID. What I mean by that is not deny the restrictions. I just mean that, yes, there's a pandemic in our world. Yes, these are difficult times. But that should not hinder us from completing the mission that Jesus has called us to do. We're just going to do it creatively and differently. We are not holding back. We're pushing forward. So do you love mercy? How will you do justice? We invite you to do it in your own life, but we invite you also to do it with us together. And I hope that you are anticipating what comes next. Let's pray. We stand before you today, we sit before you today as recipients of your grace. And we stand in that grace and that grace alone. And we say thank you, our gracious God. Thank you for your death and your resurrection and your glorification and that we have been invited to be in you. And we pray that out of us would flow mercy and justice. Change our hearts transform us. Break our hearts for the things that break yours. Help us to love well. We give you thanks and praise now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.